Welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast where we dive into the many facets of organizational culture. I am your host Subhu Kalpati. I am a talent leadership and organizational development professional. My guest today is Tessa West, a professor of psychology at New York University and a leading expert in the science of interpersonal communication. Her research focuses on understanding the nature and dynamics of social perception, addressing issues in the study of interpersonal and intergroup relations. In this episode, we'll explore the topic of jerks at work, toxic coworkers and what to do about them. Incidentally, also the name of the book authored by Professor West. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, before we deep uh, dive into the topic of the day, um, I would love to uh, know a little bit about your background and your journey. Um, you are, of course, a professor at uh, at NYU, and um, you know if you could uh, talk a little bit about how you chose academia and more specifically about your topic of research uh, and uh, jerks at work, which is the book that you've written, um, and also about work cultures and toxic work cultures. How did you get into that entire uh, domain? It'll be it'll be nice to know and start there. Yeah, I think especially for an academic, it's a little bit unusual to go from doing research for 15 years to then writing a book called Jerks at Work. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely an unusual uh, career trajectory or step. Um, so I, I became a social psychologist um, really early on, actually. So when I was in college, I went to university at UC Santa Barbara in California. Um, when I was there, I started working with this woman, Wendy Mendez, who's a professor and a, a good friend and collaborator now. And um, when I was 18, when I was my, my first year of college, I joined this lab, um, not knowing anything about social psychology at all. And it was really this cool lab where we measured people's physiology, but mostly just put them in really uncomfortable social situations. And I found this fascinating. So one of the first studies I was a part of, um, people interacted with someone who had a visual facial birthmark on their face, like a kind of a big red port wine stained face mark. And I was one of the researchers. I was what they call a confederate. So I pretended to be another subject and they had makeup artists come in um, and paint this on my face. And I didn't know if they were just putting a lot of makeup on or this or this port wine, you know, kind of stain thing. Right. And then I interacted with someone. And what we found in that study was that their physiology showed all these kinds of stress. So that lab measured people's heart rate and their blood pressure and these kinds of things. Um, but at the same time, they were acting kind of really nice all the time. Um, this right. phenomenon that Wendy coined as brittle smiles. And I found this so fascinating that people can kind of feel one way and act another and mm. they avoid conflict and they avoid confrontation. And so I was 18 and that was kind of my first introduction into social psychology. And I now still do kind of these weird studies like this where I make people uncomfortable and see what happens. And so from there, um, I spent four years at university just getting research experience, learning how to do these crazy studies. And then I went to graduate school where I continued to look at interpersonal interactions. So we did things like having people who come from different racial groups interact on um, like a video feed, like Zoom. Um, you know, this was in like 2003. So we used TiVo, which dates me, <laughs> but to delay the interaction by one second and just showed that small disruptions like that can really mess up the flow of an interaction. Mm. So I've been doing these kinds of awkward social interaction studies for a long time. 
I then became a professor after graduate school at NYU, and I continued doing this work. I started looking at things like status and power, um, and then naturally in the workplace, right? So in the workplace where you have to get feedback or you have to give feedback to a boss or someone who holds power over you, or you're negotiating with your team on who to hire. So those were the kinds of things I started to study, those real-world questions or those basic issues of discomfort and avoidance and stress we're still really coming through. So I spent 15 years doing this work, um, got tenure, became a full professor. And then I decided I want to write a book about how to actually navigate these situations. I had become a leader at NYU and I was really screwing things up quite a bit. <laughs> People were crying. I wasn't good at it despite being an expert in these things. And I thought it'd be fascinating to just give people a hands-on guide of handling these conflict situations that I had then at that point had really kind of noticed for, you know, 20 plus years in my career of all the ways that we go wrong, all the ways we avoid these things. So, you know, that was kind of my path. I have a lot of jobs in retail. I've been working since I was 15. So I'd seen these things play out in the real world as well. Mm. And so I just kind of brought all that experience together along with my own leadership experience um, to, to write this book. And so, and so here we are today. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Professor. And the first experiment that you mentioned probably also, um, you know, feels real right now. Although I have a fi- smile on my face, I do feel a little jittery inside because obviously we're meeting for the first time and I'm recording this episode with you. So <laughs> it's a pretty accurate yeah. description of how I might <laughs> feel right now. <laughs> so, and, and we say if you can feel stress in your body, it's pretty bad. <laughs> Actually, yeah. normally, even when we're stressed, we, we can't really detect it, right? It, it takes a yeah. lot to actually feel your palms sweating and your and your heart racing and things like that. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I was like, hmm, that sounds about how I feel right now. And hopefully I'll feel better as we go along. So. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Thanks uh, for sharing that, Professor. Now, coming to the topic of, of your research, especially the book, um, Jerks at Work and uh, Toxic Coworkers and What to Do About Them. Um, how, how First question to you, Professor, is how common is this is this phenomenon, right, of toxicity at work? Is this a widespread phenomenon? Uh, anecdotally, uh, you know, I work full time, so I uh, I could relate to a lot of um, uh, you know stuff that you've written in the book, um, and that's of course anecdotal. But also wanted to check with you, um, you know, is this something that's uh, that's normal? Is it is it uh, something that happens all the time and very frequently at work? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I intentionally created categories of people that are common, right? So I, you know, maybe gaslighting is the the, the least common of the types, but. Yeah most problems at work are pretty small and pretty low level and they add up over time. And so I think it's actually pretty rare to get someone who screams at you and throws things at you Mm. or sexually harassment, stuff like that, that happens. But the the stuff I talk about in this book, the kind of more low level daily grind, irritating, disrespectful micromanagement, those things are extremely common. I think like 90% of people have had a micromanager at some point in their career. Mm. And so I'd say, yeah, I mean, we all know what it it feels like to be on the receiving end. We've probably all been guilty of a lot of these behaviors. I think they all kind of fall within the realm of just the worst case version of yourself (laughs) that we're all capable of of being. And so I wanted people to read this book and to to recognize these things and say, oh, I've had that, but also to feel a little uncomfortable and think, oh, was I that person? (laughs) And and that was intentional. So, So I'd say, yeah, it's extremely common. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I did take the quiz also that you have at the end of the book. And um, I was a little uncomfortable, you know, going over some of the questions. I was like, wait a minute, is this is this really me? And I had to take it off because yeah, it, it is me a few times, right? So it is also in, in some cases, it was holding a mirror onto myself. But for the most part, I think I, I fell in the category of ideal co-worker. Although I did have a few, um, uh, you know, what was it? I, I forget the name now. I don't think you're a conniving trickster. My guess is that you'd be, you know, going through the motions. Yeah. Going through the motions is common. Going through the motions. Yes. That's right. I had a few going through the motions. That's actually the most common. Yeah, and just a couple of conniving tr- tricksters. So I, I I put a hand on my heart and I said, okay, wait, I do do this a couple of times at least of those fifteen times. So <laughs> I should I should be aware of what I'm doing. So I think it, it just built up my self awareness to a different level altogether. Yeah, I think, and you know, most people are all of these things at some point. Yeah. Um, if you're a hundred percent of an ideal coworker, you're probably just lying to yourself. Have someone yeah. take it about you instead and <laughs> see what those results look like. Um, coming to the next point, Professor, uh, again, you mentioned early on in the book is that, um, you know, we are in this state of denial. And you said uh, also that these are, you know, pretty much day to day interactions that we have to deal with. And a lot of times, it kind of seeps in into the work uh, itself, and we don't realize it's happening around us. And we may be in denial with with all of it. So what's the problem with that? Why do we tend to endure rather than, you know, resist and kind of push back? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it's a complicated issue. I think a lot of us don't confront my nature. I think confronting well is really hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I wrote the book. And it just often feels easier to not. It feels easier just to complain to your friends or colleagues about it, but to not really tackle it or to give it one try and it doesn't really work out, which is like most of us. And and it backfires in some ways. So we say, you know, I'm not going to do this again. So I think this kind of you know, I've talked a lot lately about the culture of niceness and how that's a problem because we don't give yeah. accurate feedback. You know, when there's a broad culture of avoiding confrontation of any kind or even giving feedback, we just end up with no skills of how to actually confront in an effective way and focus on behaviors because we're so afraid it's going to backfire. We don't know what to say. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's really common. And I think that is the dominant response that most people have. And if you're in that culture and that's not you, you want to confront, you, you want to be better about these things, it, you're going to be really kind of facing some headwinds because everyone around you is going to look at you like, what are you doing? You're being yeah. so rude. You know, so you don't you don't want to violate norms, even if that's not you. So I think that that's really common. And I also think a lot of people right now um, are afraid of criticizing because they're afraid of being canceled. They're afraid that their coworker is going to go onto Twitter or TikTok and like say something about them. Yeah. Um, I, I know this is very common or go into a Slack channel or whatever. And so you kind of get all these things combined, the culture, the fear, the norms, um, and then just a lack of training. You know, I never was taught how to confront someone who's not doing a good job at their job, you know, and um, I think most people aren't. And I think we often just wait till it gets really, really bad. And then we sort of panic and don't know what to do. Um, So I think there's all those kind of messy reasons why we don't do it. And I think those are normal and natural. And I think just understanding that that is the default state, it's a good starting place. You know, assume that people are not comfortable either giving or getting this feedback and there's a culture of niceness. Now, what do we do? Now, where do we go from there? And you you do mention quite a few uh, methods that we can apply and we'll get to that um, in just some time. 
Um, before we go there, uh, Professor, one other, a couple of other questions I wanted to ask. The first one is that, um, you know, what are some misconceptions, common misconceptions that we may harbor uh, about jerks at work, right? So are these tenured people? Are these new people? Uh, what's the typical kind yeah. of, uh, what should I know about um, about these folks? They are all people, <laughs> I think. So I think one misconception people have is that jerks at work are bad apples. Mm. They have a personality flaw. There's something wrong with them. And part of that is that there's intent. They are doing this to sabotage you. Mm. Um, uh, when we're victimized, we have a spotlight effect on us. We assume that we're being targeted. And I think what's fascinating that I've actually learned in my research since I published this book, Collecting Data, um, you know, with a colleague of mine at Penn is that most of the time people don't know they're jerks. They're not, there's not a lot of intent behind it. In fact, a lot of those behaviors are actually harming them as much as they're harming you. And right. so that misattribution, that assuming intent that's not there or assuming a, a type of intent that isn't there, um, I think is, is a huge mistake we make that, that most people aren't bad apples. I mean, of course, there are some bad apples, but by and large, most of us are capable of being good and bad at work. And that intent isn't necessarily what you think it is. And I think dispelling that notion is really important. Um, and we always assume we know the right thing, right? So hmm. most of us think we're pretty accurate readers of other people, of their intent, of situations, of, of their personality traits. But we aren't, by and large. And confidence isn't related to accuracy. And so dispelling this notion that you know why someone did something or that hmm. your assumption is correct, I think is really important. So I think that's kind of one of the main kind of miss. Another one is that if you're being targeted and no one's doing anything about it, it's because they don't care. Um, the number of people who've come to me and said, my boss just doesn't care about this person. Well, maybe that's true, but your boss probably either doesn't know or doesn't understand the severity of the situation or is being targeted themselves. Um, and yeah. so I think uh, just not assuming that there's kind of this like top down I don't know, buying into this behavior or acceptance of it or even kind of ignoring of it is an important thing. People don't know how to talk to their bosses about these issues. It's really tough. But assuming that your boss knows and doesn't care is often kind of a, a misguided assumption. Um, so and then I think kind of maybe the last one and this kind of is similar to the first is that like jerks usually aren't born, they're made that, that most mm. of the time there's some kind of structural thing. You know, if you describe your jerk problem to me, the first questions I'm going to ask are not going to be about your jerk. It's going to be about the structure of the organization that's allowing that person's behavior to thrive. What are those things? Take the focus away from the person. Think about the the structure. What what are the procedures there? What you know? What who's in charge of what? What is the culture around X, Y, and Z? Yeah. And so, shifting your focus from person to systems is going to be a really important part of the process. Yeah, that's that's very insightful. Thanks for that. I was also reflecting on, um, you know, uh, how this has happened to me, how how I have faced some of these issues myself. And it's um, usually about, uh, you know, when I've kind of complained about another coworker to my manager at, at one point, um, he said that, look, you know, that person is going through something herself in life. And there is there is some backstory that you should be aware of. And I fully empathize. But now that you also mentioned it, it's also about the management style of my manager and the way that he was handling this you know, yeah. dynamic between us and how much or how little he was intervening, um, right? That also matters. So therefore that yeah. culture of being okay with it and, you know, letting it play out vis-a-vis -vis getting in and doing something about it, I suppose also matters. 
Yeah. And your manager, who knows how that person was being managed, right? Yeah. And if they're in kind of middle management, they have like eight minutes a day or something like that to, to, to handle their direct reports. Most of their time is answering to the person who's above them. And so often this kind of neglect around these issues is just mm-hmm. really comes down to a time issue that managers' right. time is not their own. It belongs to their boss. And once we realize that, it can really kind of help orient us around kind of the, the scope of the problem. Um, another thing that that really caught my eye, uh, Professor, is the fact that uh, you know uh, there could be physical ailments. These are not only affecting us psychologically, but also our physiology, um, right? Uh, because we are going through the stress of dealing with toxic coworkers day in and day out. Uh, could you talk uh, a little ab- about that? That was kind of fascinating to hear. I thought it's just mental, but it's also probably affecting how how I might turn up uh, on a day to day basis. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mentioned kind of at the start of this um, podcast that my first introduction into psychology was looking at people's physiology. And one mm. thing that um, we have found, and I have found in a lot of my studies, is that this kind of under the skin stress response happens pretty quickly. It happens, you know, pretty frequently. Um, and it adds up over time to really eat away at your health. And so stress at work, you're more likely to actually bring your stress from your work to your home. So the stress contagion goes from the direction of work to home, taking it out on your spouse, on your kids, then you are the other way around. And people are always surprised at that. Um, Yes, if you had a fight with your kid or your spouse, you might be grumpy at work, but we spend more time at work. We spend more hours at work than we do with our families. And so that stress the, the the strength of the effect is much it's much bigger to go from work to home from than from home to work and i think once we realize that it starts to make sense that not only do we start to see kind of physical ailments popping up when we're stressed at work so kind of the first sign is sleep that's the first thing that usually goes for people is disruptive mm. sleep followed by diet and exercise and then over time um, you start to see cardiovascular problems, diabetes, cancer, even um, pretty much just the laundry list of bad health problems you can have. Those are the things you have at, at work. And the reason why is because our bodies are equipped to handle acute stressors. We're, we're a little bit like zebras in the wild. You can, we can be chased by a lion and then five minutes later, if we're not eaten, be fine. Yeah. Um, we've evolved to be that. But what we haven't evolved are just to have these kind of daily low level stressors. Mm-hmm. Know, death by a thousand paper cuts, so to speak, at where our cortisol kind of never comes down. Um, it just stays at an elevated rate. And eventually all that stress adds up. You're going to get blunted stress responses. Your body's not going to respond at all the stressors, which is really scary. Um, and that's kind of a danger zone um, that people find themselves in. And then I think when you're going through this, recognizing that your stress is not your own, that you're going to spread it to other people. And that could be other colleagues or coworkers. If you're anxious, they're going to catch that. Their physiology is going to start to mirror yours. So I've done a lot of studies on stress contagion, showing that stress me out in a meeting and I'm going to go talk to someone and their body is going to start to look like mine, right? Their stress responses. And then you're going to bring that home with you. I have studies showing that babies can catch stress from their stressed out moms, even if their mom just went through a five minute stressful interaction, six month old babies start to show elevated heart rate and stuff. So knowing that I think you might feel like you can regulate your stress, but it's probably leaking out of you in, in right. more subtle ways. And and kind of ironically, the harder you try to regulate it, the worse it comes out. Um, self-regulation of these things often fails and you're going to snap at your kid or you're going to be less affectionate or whatever the thing. Um, and, and so those physiological things that start to happen in your body will start to happen around the people in the people around you as well. And I think that's, that's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, a, a really a terrifying thought. For yeah. Sure. 
Yeah, and and it kind of seeps in, right? I mean, it's not something that's like you said. It's it's, it's over a thousand cards of paper, for example, the way that you put it. Um, you, you don't even know that's happening to you, so therefore you need to take a step back every once in a while and uh, take a call. I, I the number of times I have apologized to my wife, saying that look, I'm sorry about today or tonight, uh, right? Which uh, which probably had to do something, uh, you know, of what happened at work. Um, yeah, so I I can totally relate to that. Yeah, and I think most of us kind of know what's happening, but we don't really have good self-regulation strategies for mm. it. Or we try to like push it down, right? Or tell ourselves it's not a big deal or just suck it up. Um, that that tends to be a very dominant response of just like, this is work, this is life. You just suck it up. Everyone goes through this. And I think that to me is a kind of a dangerous mindset to be in. Sure. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit now, Professor, and talk about some of the taxonomies that you've uh, that you've built in the book. Uh, let's see how many we can cover. Maybe uh, start with uh, the kiss up kick downer. Um, that's an interesting one. Um, could you talk a little bit about this particular uh, is is persona the right word or should we use taxonomy? I need to be sure about what I'm <laughs> what whatever. I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you ask. Either either works for me. I think taxonomy is how I thought about it, but it's definitely a type. It's a person, right? We we know that person. Um, right. The Kiss Up Kickdowner was inspired by someone who I worked with in retail when I sold shoes, high-end men's shoes. And retail is a perfect place for this kind of thing because you sort of you need to um, beat other people. So it's a zero-sum game. Um, mm. But you also have to kind of pretend to be a team player, right? So the manager doesn't hate you and wants to kind of kick you out. Um, so the Kiss Up Kick Downer is really um, an expert at being really good at their job and impressing the boss and doing and saying all the right things in front of the boss, but kind of torturing subordinates or even equal status peers behind the scenes a little bit. But they often get away with it because... They're very good at reading the room. They know who has status. They yeah. know who they have to kind of kiss up to. They even know who they have to say nice things about their subordinates to behind their back, right? So they're not just going to always trash talk their subordinates or their colleagues. Sometimes they're going to say really nice things about them in an effort to look like a good team player. Yeah. And I think the real trick with this person, if you're on the receiving end, is just this frustration that... They're getting away with so much, right? Mm -hmm. And they're good at a lot of things. They're 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 effective at work. They know how to kiss up to the boss. They tend to be well connected socially, so they have like all these kinds of rich social networks. They know how to play the game. They tend to be very Machiavellian. Um, so you see this a lot in real cutthroat industries, like uh, in law, for example, in a law firm where only one person can make partner. Um, any kind of ranking systems, they you know, or sales where it's just inherently competitive, tend to attract these kinds of people. Um, and you know, my first time kind of trying to confront a boss over this person really didn't work out at all. I told my boss that he was awful and he was stealing, you know, customers. And she just called me jealous and petty and told me to get over it. So complaining about them is often not the most effective strategy. I think like building a case around why they're creating a culture problem is, is better or why they could start to bleed talent because of this person, that they're more of a disease, less like just my problem. Um, I think that that was kind of the lesson I learned um, in my first foray with a kiss up kick downer. That's very interesting. And a follow-up question there, Professor, is how do you uh, how do you deal with them, right? How do you make sure that um, uh, you know? Do you do you just leave their company, or do you uh, can you do something to yeah. take care of this? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the the sort of desire to want to confront them and to stand up for yourself and not be bullied tends to not be super effective with this person. They're probably going to out 
out kind of compete you um, with their mad social skill. I think the best thing that you can do, and it's, it takes a lot of patience and work, is actually kind of take a step back. And instead of confronting them or your boss, do a little homework to figure out how widespread the problem actually is. Mm. And I think in my case, what I did was I found out other people in the company who had worked with this person. And when I talked to those people, I didn't say, he's awful. Do you think he's awful? <laughs> you know, I didn't like gossip about him. What I did was say, you know, have you worked with Dave before? What was your experience like? And just tried to ask questions in a really open-ended way that wouldn't get me labeled as a gossip, mm. you know, and just say, did you have a positive experience? And some people did, you know, not everybody was a victim of this person. And then just tried to collect as much data as I could before going to the boss. Um, if other people are feeling victimized, but they're afraid to speak out, there's power in numbers. So yeah. for the more people you can kind of get together, the better. And I think what you want to do is kind of lead with a, a documentation of the very specific behaviors this person has did has done, not how he makes you or, or they make you feel. I think a lot of us want to kind of complain about how we feel. We feel disrespected. We feel like they don't trust us. Yeah. Feelings are vague and they're hard to act on behaviors are specific and those are easier to act on. And what you want to do is remove kind of any ambiguity about, you know, was this just you're being too sensitive or, or you know, are you jealous? You want to remove that attributional ambiguity for your boss and do the work for them and say, here's exactly what happened and here's the day it happened and here's the time it happened. Yeah. And then let them draw their own conclusions about those behaviors. I think when I'm a leader, people complain to me and they say, this person is a poor decision maker. This just happened to me um, in my lab at NYU. Someone complained. This person is bad, has bad judgment. And then mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean by that? Well, they just don't have good judgment. I'm like, that's not a thing. Judgment, <laughs> judgment is not a thing. What exactly did they do? And so right. perspective take and, and, you know, and a lot of the advice for all of these types is going to be around this kind of focus on the behavior, mm. collect some data. And your boss needs to actually feel a little bit nervous that if they don't act on this, it's going to create a real problem. There's going to be bleeding talent. Yeah. They're going to have a hard time recruiting new people. This person is a bit of a cancer um, to the team or to the organization. And until they are in that mindset, they're going to be very defensive of the person because they like them. So they're already kind of on their side. So this, this strategy takes work in the book. I give you steps of like exactly how to go through it. Yeah. But and it takes a lot of patience. But it's the opposite of the instinct, which is to just confront them and tell them stop bullying. That that tends to not be super effective with this type. The other um, uh, you know persona that I would love to uh, talk about, which really resonated with me because um, you know I, I felt that this was happening to me while I was reading it, which is the credit stealers. Um, so it, it's it's about an ex colleague where I had this entire episode where, you know, I work with this person very closely on something. And then uh, once after the work is done, suddenly, you know, there is uh, praise all over the place. And I'm not mentioned anywhere in any of that. Right. So and I was like, what's happening? So I, I reached out to my boss. He didn't mention, uh, you know, my effort. And I had to kind of lay it out to him saying that, look, I also contributed to this. And these are the five things I did. He didn't even know that, you know, I had worked on something like this. Right. So it, it, he was completely blind to the entire exercise. Um, and it, it resonated also because that colleague was kind of a friend and, you know, uh, would always be pally with me and, uh, you know, would work closely with me. But then when it comes to, um, you know, sharing of praise and letting people know that we have done this together, there was no mention of the, the work that I had put in. So uh, that that hit me like a ton of bricks uh, when I was reading uh, about it. Could you talk a little bit about this person also? 
Yeah, I think I, I love that you mentioned that the person who did this to you was a friend and colleague because I think that's actually the most common version of credit stealing. Mm. It doesn't usually happen with someone that we don't know very well. It happens with someone we trust. And the reason why it happens with someone we trust is because once we trust people, we stop executing on like clear procedures of documenting who did what and when. Yeah. And we no longer kind of follow protocol of how to allocate credit as we go, right? And so- those things that we have to do preemptively, where we decide ahead of time, you know, who's doing what and when, and we figure out a process of allocating credit for those tasks, you know, that kind of stuff really falls apart when you're in a tight-knit team. And in fact, tight-knit teams, good working um, cultures often have a problem of credit stealing more than other types of cultures because people trust each other. And then once that happens, those procedures kind of fall apart. And so I think, you know, a, a huge piece of kind of preventing this is learning how to have voice. When you speak up, people listen. Um, but even more importantly, is just a system of actually documenting credit because the process mm -hmm. of credit granting can be very messy. And yeah. most of us feel like we did more than we're getting credit for. There's a kind of a, a human universal to assume that we weighed in more than, yeah. than potentially other people thought that we did. One of the reasons for that is there's a lot of invisible labor that goes on at work, things that are done behind the scenes that are never documented. Right. Um, so you kind of have to do this like it's going to feel a little bit like you're a hall monitor in um, elementary school where you're like keeping track of everything. But I think a lot of us do work that we forget about or other people don't see and they forget about. And we have the spotlight effect on us. And so I think creating those clear documented systems, even when you are friends with that person, is good. Mm. Um, that said, cre clever credit stealers will still do things like go behind the scenes to a leader and take credit for things. Mm. Um, probably what this person also did is grant you credit for some things, yeah. but just not the things that matter, right? Not the things that actually get you social capital at work. And so I think um, that's where you have to have a super open system around these things. I think Every time I let things get a little loose um, in my working groups, we're all just kind of working on a Google Doc at the same time. Yeah. And then we have to, in academia, the main thing is figuring out who's going to be senior author on a publication. There's this big cat fight of like who deserves it more. And I think every time I fail to, to make rules of what gets you a thing, this happens. And so even just saying things like the person who does the following tasks is going to get it the most credit for this thing and, and operationalize it in a really clear way. The person who does this part, it's going to get credit in this way. I also like this because it can prevent free writing as well, which, yeah. which also sort of helps, but it's an individual skill. So all that said, that's like structure procedure stuff. The best thing you can do to kind of prevent people from stealing credit in the moment is by learning how to have voice at work. And that means learning how to say things in a way that people in power care about that aren't just, um, and it's not about holding the floor. It's not about talking the most. It's about when you speak up, people listen and your ideas stick to you and only you. And you need to actually have that social capital walking into that room. You can't gain it in the moment. Right. And to get that, you have to go behind the scenes and figure out. You, you need to be a person that the the leaders in the room, they value your opinion. And you can, you know, I give you a couple of tricks of like how to actually learn what those things are by finding kind of people in your social network who um, don't necessarily have power, but they know how to get people to listen who do have power. And I think once you have that social capital, 
it's much easier for your ideas to stick to you and not to somebody else. Um, and I think that that is a skill that most of us undervalue. We assume that credit granting happens in the moment. It's almost always predetermined, um, just based on who says the thing before we even walk in the room. It's a losing game if you don't have that social capital. And this doesn't require you to be Machiavelli. It just requires you to learn how to phrase things and to speak up and to interrupt the right people, but not the wrong people, and to not insist on holding the floor. Those kinds of skills um, are, are kind of your best anecdote to prevent future credit stealing. And I think this also talks to your um, other point that you make in the book is that we have these inherent biases, uh, especially about how to accurately gauge, um, you know, our contribution, as as you mentioned it, if we, if we take that little bit of extra effort to make sure that that's documented in a way that everybody's aware, uh, it will help, um, you know, solve problems in the future. Um, so that's, I think that's the other point also that you make in the book. Yeah. And I think like, you know, what's really interesting, I've been doing a lot of these like executive leadership training programs. And one thing that a lot of leaders say is that junior people will come to them and say, I did this job and I didn't get credit for it. And there's two things that they have to kind of get to the bottom of. They have to investigate. One, was that junior person just taking it upon themselves to do something that they had no business doing right. in an effort to gain social capital? And that actually irritated the team. And so mm. the team tried to kind of squash and say, like, that's not your job. Stop being so thirsty. Stop trying to climb up, right. you know? So so sometimes they're over-volunteering. And then the other problem that can happen with newcomers or inexperienced people is they say, I did this thing, and it's actually a pretty nominal thing. It's not a super important component, but mm. it took them forever. Mm. And so they're confounding importance of the task with time it took to do the task. And it, because it took them five times longer than, say, the average person, because they don't know what they're doing yet, they want way more credit for contributing to the team's outcome than the other team thinks they should get because right. they, the rest of the team members thought that was like a baby task that should have taken 10 minutes, not 10 hours. Right. And so what you end up with is this fight over task importance versus time. And I think that's something that the team needs to work out ahead of time. And you need to figure out how long it takes to do certain things as a function of expertise and make sure that you're not, you know, giving people tasks that will take them forever, getting an on having an honest understanding of that. So that's just kind of two little things that, that I definitely noticed that leaders have been complaining about lately to me around this issue of um, accusations of credit theft. Um, I also now want to talk about uh, the the other persona that you talk about, which is which are bulldozers. Um, and I also like the specific example that you quote in the book, which is, you know, um, oh, a specific example that you quote, which is, you know, the people who talk too much in meetings and take up all the airtime. And suddenly you're left with, you know, five minutes to discuss a really important topic. And you give the example of maybe using a talk time app uh, and make sure that yeah. you do <laughs> document how much time. Yeah, it, it rang true because uh, so often you're in meetings where there's one person who's taking up 70% of the time and suddenly the meeting is done. So, uh, you know, so how do you how do you handle the bulldozer type, uh, Professor? <laughs> yeah, we we all know this person, especially during the era of Zoom when they would take up the whole screen. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, what there, there's this misconception out there that talking the most gives you the most influence and the most social mm. capital. It's actually not true at all. I've done a million studies where we've coded talk time and it almost never predicts anything interesting. Um, what it does predict is perceptions of dominance that you have of yourself, <laughs> which isn't right. totally surprising. It's a dominance behavior. It's not effective, um, you know, um, 
convincing behavior, persuasion behavior. So I think people have this lay theory that if they hold the floor the longest, they're going to have the most influence. And that's simply just not the case. Mm. And I think also people tend to free associate and not actually keep track of how much time they talk. A lot of people think out loud, especially if they have power. And I think the first step that you want to do if you have a bulldozing problem is to document it. So in your head, you might think that there might be kind of one problem, but in reality, there's another. Bulldozers tend to not know they're bulldozers. And, you know, there's not even consensus around how much time people are actually talking. So you first just need to document the problem. The first time I did this, it was awesome. I I went to this kind of... um, I was giving a talk among a bunch of senior leaders and at the table was the CEO and everyone had told me that he talked too much and he insisted that he didn't. And I had the group just use a talk time app and showed that he talked 600% more than everyone else. And he was shocked. He was legitimately surprised because in his company, if you were talking for too long, you got interrupted, but he was so high up that that just never had happened to him. And so he misperceived his own talk time because he underestimated his status. And mm. I think that's kind of something that we need to recognize that if you have status, you're probably not going to get interrupted. So, so doing this talk time app thing can help. But I also think the real problem is, is again, kind of structural and, and planning ahead. And so what you need as a team is to have a process. You need to say, okay, If one person's holding the floor, this high status person should probably interrupt and say, does anyone else want to speak up? Most of the bulldozing issues I've seen at work, you could put the same bulldozer in 10 meetings and they will only bulldoze in one of those 10 because in the other nine, the group was good at stopping it. And it's really up to the group to do that. It's not the bulldozer. The group needs to have a plan of how, and it needs to be a high power person that will say, okay, who else would like to speak up? Does anyone else want to share their thoughts? Thank you, John, for your thoughts. Let's hear from other people. So I think the kind of structural thing is really important um, with bulldozing. And most bulldozers do have power and status and people don't want to interrupt them. Um, But it behooves the group to come up with a plan ahead of time. And then I'd say at the end of that, you can turn lemons into lemonade a little bit if you do have a bulldozer. Instead of shutting them down, and putting them in a box, get them to be on your side to actually stand up for low power people who can't speak up. Mm. So getting the bulldozer to interrupt other people who are also bulldozing to say, thank you for your thoughts. We haven't heard from um, Tina today. Um, You know, we haven't heard from Jamal. Would you guys like to speak up? And getting, utilizing their skill of jumping in um, to to actually leverage or to lift up the voices of lower power people. So I I like to try to use my bulldozers um, in very strategic ways to make them feel like a big deal, but also help use them to help give voice to other people. And like you also mentioned in the book, most of the time they just want to feel heard and they don't really have much of an agenda. So how do you, mm-hmm. you know, channelize that energy in a productive way so that it, it helps everyone in the room? Yeah, don't just try to shut them down. Try to think about how you could use them. Who else needs to be shut down? There's probably another person. So get yeah. your bulldozer to bulldoze the other <laughs> bulldozer. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm going to try that next time. I can, I've already made mental notes. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> Um, let's talk a little bit, uh, Professor, about the micromanagers, probably the most ubiquitous of all uh, <laughs> manager types, at least that I have come across. Um, it, it was infi- insightful to read, um, uh, you know, when I was reading that particular part of the book is that uh, micromanagers may actually be neglectful. And that was a little counterintuitive for me when I read it the first time. Um, could you could you talk a little bit about how that plays out, right? So where is it that micromanagers focus too much energy on and what should they be doing instead? 
Yeah, I think this is like, this was a real awakening for me when I realized that micromanagement and neglect are two sides of the same coin. Um, You know, most micromanagers kind of go through um, cycles. So they they become very intense and they micromanage you on, you know, they're, they're getting in the weeds with something that's probably a little bit irrelevant. Chances are you used to hold their old job and they're really good at that. They don't know what they're doing in their new job. So they're just going to put all of their energy into making you as good as they were (laughs) in their heads at at that old job. But while that's happening, think of all the people that they're not paying attention to or all the tasks that they're not paying attention to because you Mm -hmm. can't micromanage everyone at the same time. So probably what you'll get is you're getting micromanaged now. You're going to get neglected in two weeks and then you're going to get micromanaged again. In fact, the biggest micromanager I knew at my job completely dropped the ball on the most important part of the job, which was assigning teaching roles um, for the next semester. So we had like no teaching lined up, right? Like that's the most important part, but they were so into the weeds with something else. So I think that is common. Often when you complain about micromanagement to your colleague, they'll be like, what are you talking about? I haven't seen that person in weeks. That's because they're off cycle <laughs> I mean, you're on cycle. So I think I think it's really common to see this. I, I actually feel a little bit bad for most micromanagers because yeah. usually it's coming from the top down. They didn't get any training. They, they're go-getters, they're perfectionists. And the way they do that is by like overseeing and not knowing the difference between essentially urgent things that need to be micromanaged and those that don't. They're very bad at kind of rank ordering the list of importance of different skills. And I think... Um, and for that, you actually kind of have to lean in and meet them even more frequently than you probably want to, but they need to be kind of structured, short meetings, focus on very specific goals, yeah. um, that you've agreed to ahead of time. Otherwise they'll just go, just go, they'll go wild with obsessing over whatever. And so you kind of have to rein them in a little bit with goals, conversations, with having task lists. Um, Google Docs that allow them to check on the progress of your work without bugging you. So, you know, letting them spy on you a little bit in a way that you're kind of comfortable with, um, you know, to make to reduce their anxiety so they, they don't feel anxious all the time. They could just look at the doc. Um, that's that tend to be how I handle those types of folks. But but they definitely are neglectful. In fact, most of them are both. Most of them are both of those chapters. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's also a common theme in terms of the solutions that you mentioned in the book, right? A little bit of planning, I think, goes a long way uh, across all of these different types. And also having um, the other point that you mentioned is uh, creating a social alliance and having groups of people um, who will help you, uh, right? And, and deal with some of these uh, types of people so you can work better with them. Yeah, you know, one theme that I, I hit on a lot is getting a shared reality of how widespread the problem is. I think sometimes we go at it alone. Um, and we think, you know, I, I'm the one that has to solve this. We also don't know if we're the only victim or if there's a lot of other victims. And kind of knowing the answer to that question is going to be really important with how you move forward. If you're the only victim of a micromanager, for example, this might not really be an issue of micromanagement. Maybe mm. you need to be overseen and, and not necessarily, but you got to get to the bottom of that first before you can just kind of accuse the person of being the problem and you, you don't have any kind of role in that. So, I completely agree. You got to utilize your social resources a little bit more carefully and systematically, but just knowing how widespread and whether there's consensus around a person or there isn't consensus um, and whether you have the same shared reality as other people is something that most of us don't think about when we're being victimized. We are very much in our own heads and our own experiences. We're just thinking about ourselves and how awful this is. We don't think about this in terms of like a structural or system level problem or culture problem. Um, 
them. And, you know, it's an isolating experience when you go at that way, when you try to do it by yourself and it's not effective. So I, I try to get people to kind of break out of that habit a little bit. Probably the most important um, persona I've, I've kind of saved for the last, which is the gaslighters, um, right? And uh, I, I felt that that was the most interesting of all, um, especially because, you know, gaslighters, as you mentioned in the book also, is that they, they try to create this alternate reality of, you know, how things might be. And you you question your own sanity. Am I the one who's reading this differently or you know, what's really happening here, right? So uh, sometimes I have I have felt that myself with a few colleagues at some points in time. But, uh, you know, you also don't realize uh, that it's happening to you, right? You you go by what they, they're telling you and you trust them and therefore you just go with it. But then there are points in time when you do kind of take a step back and, you know, ask yourself what's what's really going on. So, uh, again, I've, uh, I've kind of laid out the question for you, I think. So why do you think this happens? What what can we do about the gaslighters? Yeah, these people are really tough. And I think, you know, this whole time I've been talking about how, you know, jerks aren't born, they're made, but yeah. gaslighters are born <laughs> <laughs> more. Well, they're made, but not in the workplace usually. It's like, so So these people are special because they are um, very good at creating alternative realities for people. And I think to do that effectively without getting caught or without people sort of smelling it early, mm. they are very strategic and they start small. And I think kind of that the first thing that will happen to you if you're a victim of a gaslighter is the social isolation. Mm. And that isn't that doesn't always feel bad. And so I think when people think about gaslighters, they think about being abused. They think about um, you know, being called idiots or told that if they don't speak up there or if they do speak up, they'll get fired. But a lot of times gaslighting in the beginning is all about flattery. It's mm -hmm. grooming almost. It's, you know, I'm going to isolate you from this team because you're super special and you're going to be part of this really cool thing that other people can't know about yet because it's so special and cool. And I see this as the kind of earliest stage, you know, for a lot of gaslighting. In fact, I've dealt with a couple of gaslighters at work and they almost always had good relationships with the victims for the yeah. first year or so before they start the abuse. Then once they've socially isolated you and you sort of have to be part of that, right? It can't just be them cutting you off. You have to also want to be part of something special and not want to do that happy hour with the colleagues or not join that writing yeah. retreat or whatever the thing is. There is an appeal to being special and to being cut off, at least initially. And the workplace has to be a place where this can kind of happen and no one really notices. So a lot of times it's newcomers, it's new hires that this happens to who kind of mm. slip through the cracks that don't have a kind of built-in social networking plan that everybody goes through. It's a little willy-nilly. It's a little like, cool if you can go to this event, but you don't really have to. It's easy for people to become socially isolated. So that has to be the first step. And then from there, the lies start off pretty small. Mm. Um, you know, and normally um, a lot of the lies are a little bit ambiguous where you could kind of justify maybe why they happen. And eventually they work their way up to something like much grander. But usually by then, you've also kind of done a few things that are maybe questionable or ethical that maybe you didn't even know you were violating rules or ethics or you stole something, but you didn't really realize you were stealing something. Like we think about these behaviors in very black and white terms, ethical right. behaviors, but often they're not. They're small. They're like a frog in boiling water. Maybe you were like, you did the unethical thing, but you, you know, you broke into someone's computer and took a document, but you didn't really realize what you were doing. Like there's a lot of that ambiguity going on. And then by the time you're living this in alternative reality, you feel guilty. You feel like you've contributed to it and you don't know what's true and what's not because you haven't been in contact with people for a really long time. And I think once you realize that, 
then it's really hard to get out because your gaslighter has a lot of hold over you and they tend to have a lot of social capital. And the one time at work where I've experienced someone breaking up with their gaslighter, the first thing that happened when the gaslighter found out they were going to do it was this person the gaslighter went on a mad tear, went door to door, office to office, and engaged in impression management and just talked, said terrible things about the person behind their back. Everything they could to discredit them before the accusations even came out. So this was all just the preemptive move. And I think, you know, um, if this happens to you, if someone, one of these people comes to your door, just nod your head and don't say anything, don't contribute to the conversation. So I think the psychology is really scary and it's and it's complex. And most victims take a very long time to actually be able to extricate themselves, mm. both literally and also psychologically. And a lot of them, there's residue. 10, 20 years later, they talk about the experience and how it messed them up and made them not trust another leader. And, yeah. you know, it really leaves a mark in ways that I think some of these other jerks I've talked about um, don't. We've spoken about uh, both sides of the coin, which is, you know, the personas and the victims. There is also a third wheel here, which are the allies who are very important to make sure that, you know, we get through these on a day-to-day basis. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, what's the importance of allies and how can we be better allies to each other, right, when we yeah. when we confront some of these at uh, at our workplace? Yeah, I think most of us think we're think of ourselves as allies. And if you were to give us yeah. hypothetical scenarios at work about whether we would stand up for someone, we always say yes. In fact, I have a lot of mm. research on this. <laughs> you know, if you see someone being racist to another person, would you say something? Oh, yeah, of course I would. Absolutely. No one does. Um, <laughs> I, you know, when I talk about <laughs> harassment in the workplace or I talk about sort of being the perceiver of discrimination, even small things, big things, most people do nothing. They don't Mm. want to be part of the problem, but they don't want to be part of the solution and even close friends. And, and, you know, and there's a million excuses. There's always a million good excuses why you didn't want to intervene. I just wanted us to get, you know, the kind of the best situation we could out of our boss. We just need to kind of grin and bear it until the end. Or, you know, um, I didn't want to call your name out. I didn't want to humiliate you. Or, you know, the real reason is I don't want to lose social capital. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. And so I've been in a situation where I've confronted and I'm the only one. Um, And everyone else around me is just like silent and fear and frozen. And I think know that most people, the default is to do nothing. Mm. Even if they think of themselves as an ally, being an ally is really hard. You have to really put yourself out there. You have to confront and you have to potentially lose social capital, but you need to all be in it together that you will, you'll be willing to do those kinds of behaviors. But what's key is that you can't just tell, ask people, can you please put your neck out for me? We, you need a culture where you teach people what that looks like. Yeah. And that it needs to become an automatic behavior that gets triggered when this toxicity happens. So that it's not weird or hard for someone to stand up for another person. It's what we do here, right? right. This is just the kind of natural response. And I think that takes a lot of work. So I think you got to get over this hurdle that allyship is easy. Um, it's not symbolic. It's not about tweeting. It's not about saying something behind someone's back. It's a real allyship is making yourself uncomfortable to help out another person. And that could be to call out a toxic person. That could be to call out a disparity. And often that discomfort will lose you social capital because you're confronting a powerful person. Mm. Um, And you will lose something if you're a real ally. It's not a free thing. And allies usually want a bunch of oscillates. They want pats on the back for being so great and so helpful at work. Real allyship is costly and it hurts and it can feel isolating and ostracizing. But that's what it is. And so I think people have to be 
uh, understanding what real allyship actually looks like versus in our heads. It's just like, yay, (laughs) you're so great. You're such a good helper. Thank you for standing up for them. That's not how it feels. In the moment, it feels like crap to be an ally. It's uncomfortable, but that is what it is. And I think you have to teach people that that's kind of part of what allyship is. And here's what it looks like. And here are the potential costs, but here's why it's worth it and why you should do it. And here's how you do it. And I think from, from what I've learned in my own life experiences is that no one thinks of allyship that way. And then once they realize that's what it is, they're like, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be in there. That's uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 I think the real challenge is to get over that discomfort. And as you mentioned, it, it takes time and effort to to become no, to become a norm in the uh, in the team and the culture. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And for everyone to be on board with that minor discomfort that, that you know, but but if you if you have a culture where I'm not just an ally for you, but you'll be an ally for me. And mm. I know that it's going to be reciprocated. Um, then people are much more likely to kind of be on board with it. Great. So um, I have one last set of questions for you, professor, before I let you go. And uh, this is the rapid fire round where I, I throw a, a, you know, a word or maybe a phrase at you and you say the first thing that comes to your mind. Right. So uh, <laughs> are you game? Should we do this? Sure. All right. So here we go. Toxic cultures. Everywhere, all the time. Healthy cultures. Never around. <laughs> Rare, <laughs> hard to find. <laughs> we are all doomed, aren't we? <laughs> uh, uh, biases. Don't try to outsmart them. We all have them. Uh, faith and supervision effect. Ooh. <laughs> um, very common, but fixable. Okay. Uh, nurturing managers. Ideal, a tough standard to meet. Okay. Allies. Harder, easier said than done. Relationships. The most important thing at work. Virtue signalers. Oh, so annoying, but <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So that's the end of the round, Professor. Thanks for playing. Oh, that was fun. I love that. I love that component of this. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a question though. So why did you make that comment about virtue signalers? Why do you think that, you know, they can do better? There's just, we've gotten ourselves into this world online where virtue signaling is the end, right? Mm -hmm. It it used to be a means to an end and now it's just the end. And it's it's gotten to the point now, and I, I just actually worked with a company where their whole diversity inclusion strategy was basically virtue signaling. Mm. It was, you know, um, we're going to do a whole bunch of things that are visible, you know, awareness months, um, you know, buying lots of balloons around LGBTQ plus groups, around indigenous groups, or we're going to have a website that looks super inclusive. That's just all like public facing stuff. But when I asked them what they're actually doing with the unsexy stuff is that they're doing behind the scenes that they're not getting pats on the back for, they didn't have any. And so I think virtue signaling used to be something we did that gave us some dopamine boost that made us feel good. Now it is the strategy (laughs) for diversity and inclusion. And we're not doing the daily grind boring behind the scenes real work that actually moves the needle on diversity and inclusion efforts, but doesn't necessarily get us those brownie points. And um, I, I find this kind of, you know, culture around virtue signaling really scary. It can also lead to this phenomenon called moral licensing, mm. which is, okay, well, I did the thing, therefore I'm good. 
I don't have to do anything else. I've checked the box. And for me, I just, I I hate BS. (laughs) And it is the sort of canonical category of BS in the workplace for choosing mine. You see it everywhere. Right. Great, Professor. So on that note, I think uh, it's a good place to end. Please don't be a virtue signaler. Please try to be something better. Um, I think that's the that's the note that I'm taking away. Thank you so much, Professor. It's, it's been a real pleasure having you over and uh, thanks for spending the time. Yeah, thank you. This is amazing. Um, I'm very excited to listen and I hope people got some useful tips out of this. I had several counterintuitive insights through this conversation. Toxic workplaces can literally harm our health. Micromanagers may actually be just neglectful. Becoming better allies is more than just virtue signaling and requires us to do the hard work of standing up to microaggressions. Bulldozers may actually just need more airtime. How can we enable this for them without letting them disrupt our meetings? Until next time, I hope you will think deeply and differently about toxic workplace cultures and how we can all better deal with jerks at work.